It's Daniel chapter 7, and it's in page 893 in your church Bibles. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night, I looked and before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four beasts, each different from others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human being was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of uh, flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. On its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and it devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the other beasts, and it had ten horns. Thanks, Nigel. Well, good evening, everyone. Great to see you. And uh, can I echo Neil's welcome if you're visiting? I had a, said hello to a few people before the service who are from other churches or visiting with family and friends. You're really welcome. And uh, you've joined us as we re-pick up um, in the book of Daniel. We looked at the first half of the book of Daniel last term, uh, Daniel 1 to 6. Quite familiar uh, chapters to us. And uh, we're going to look now uh, over the next few weeks at Daniel 7 to 12. Uh, they're more difficult chapters, perhaps less familiar, but they're nonetheless uh, equally as important. Uh, and I hope and pray they'll be an encouragement to us all. If you um, cast your mind back to Daniel 1 to 6, can you remember some of the stories, some of the things that went on? Uh, we had the great king Nebuchadnezzar, who was responsible for taking God's people out of Jerusalem and carting them off into exile, into Babylon. And after Nebuchadnezzar, there was his son Belshazzar, an even more evil king. And then after him, the Persian Empire rose up, and there was a man called Darius, who was king. And that sets where Daniel was in the lion's den in chapter 6. There were amazing stories, weren't they? And we saw how uh, Daniel was taken through all sorts of different experiences in his life. And uh, God was teaching him about himself. Although, in many ways, Daniel is the focus of the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel's not about Daniel. The book of Daniel is about the living God. And so as we journeyed with Daniel through all the ups and downs of his life, we were learning truths about who the living God is. Uh, And it's really important that we remind ourselves of those truths in chapters 1 to 6 because they give us great assurance as to the character of God. And we need to then carry those things into chapters 7 to 12. Uh, If you like, the first six chapters can be summarized like this. God is the sovereign Lord over Daniel's life. And so in the, in the subsequent chapters we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, we see that God is the sovereign Lord over the future. I suspect there's not a single one of us here who doesn't want to have security for our future. The unknown's um, troubling, isn't it? It can worry us. And so these chapters are hugely important as we live in an increasingly volatile and unsettled world. These chapters give us, particularly if we're Christian believers, a particular hope. And Helen's just spoken of hope in her testimony. A hope of what's to come. Uh, trusting that the Sovereign Lord is Lord over our future. 
Uh, we've touched on some of the apocalyptic literature in the Bible before. Uh, apocalyptic is just a, a posh word of, of speaking of revealing. And it's a bizarre type of writing. As, as Nigel read to us, it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? It's full of imagery. It's full of pictures that are painted that kind of evoke senses within us. They stir our emotions. Uh, apocalyptic literature was written not just so that we know truth up here, but we also feel it in here. And rather like, I've described it before, rather like opening uh, your windows and your blinds or your curtains on a bright summer's morning, and it reveals to you the expanse of the countryside around you. Before, all you could see was the bedroom and the curtains, but then you unveiled the curtains to see what was beyond. That's kind of how apocalyptic literature works in the Bible. The purpose is for God to lift our eyes up and to kind of pull back the curtains to reveal to us something much bigger that we wouldn't have naturally seen ourselves. It's rather like a, a photographer or someone filming a film and they kind of pan out and give you a panoramic view. And so the way to read apocalyptic literature is not to get bogged down in detail, but to keep stepping back and keep your eyes up. Look at the big picture. Uh, just to help us with this, um, Lydia, can I borrow you? I'm not going to embarrass you, but I just want you to come and put these really trendy glasses on. Uh, and I'm just going to explain this to everybody. They are very cool, I can assure you. All the cool people have a pair of these. Can you just stick these glasses on? And just look at all these beautiful people. What do you see? Everyone. You see everyone, and they're all beautiful, aren't they? Yeah? Right, now if I put a different coloured lens in these beautiful glasses... Now tell me what you see. Everyone's red. Everyone's red. See, you're looking at the same thing, but you're seeing it completely differently now, aren't you? Yeah. Exactly, brilliant. The illustration worked. Thank you, you can sit down. See, these glasses try to illustrate to us a bit of how apocalyptic literature works. We can still see the same stuff, but God helps us to see it in a different way. And that's what this writing is trying to do in the Bible. As you look out at the world around you, what do you see? See, if I went into Tame and you asked me, what did you see? I might say, I see crowds of people busy, busy, shopping, shopping. What does God see? He sees hundreds of people who he made in his image who don't know him, and it breaks his heart. Uh, when we go into hospital and we see people who are very, very sick, what do we see? A very, very sick people. What does God see? He sees very, very sick people who he cares for. But he sees, too, that they have a sickness inside that actually is far more important than physical sickness. Uh, when you see a, a spoiled child answering back to a parent, what do you see? A spoiled little child. But what does God see? It's like a mirror, isn't it? Held up to each one of us to show us what our heart is like. Just as a child can ignore their parents, how often do we ignore our parents? And so the purpose of this sort of writing is to try and help us to see increasingly what God sees in his world. Uh, I love watching the 10 o'clock news if I'm ever awake that long. I'm not good in the evenings, but if I can stay awake till 10, I like to put on the 10 o'clock news. But I do find it quite depressing. I find it's easy to get overwhelmed with life. Uh, there's all the sort of Brexit negotiations that are going on or not going on. Uh, it leaves us with feelings of uncertainty about the future, political and economic and all the rest of it. Uh, President Trump, just him alone, fills you possibly with dread and fear about the future. And then when he starts talking to the North Koreans, even more so, it's frightening. And we can joke about it, but it leaves us very, very unsettled. The enormous power these two men have, what could potentially happen? 
You think about poverty, the huge injustice in the world and inequality between rich and poor, and it moves you. You think about the state of our world that was given to us to steward and look after. And often I hear people say, I'm glad I'm not growing up in this generation. What kind of a world are we leaving to the younger generation? And so we have fears, don't we, for our children. The prevalence of depression and anxiety and similar um, illnesses and struggles that many people go through can leave us with a feeling of being overwhelmed and despairing. And then you just look at how increasingly secularized the world and our society is becoming. How abnormal it is now to believe in the word of God, to trust in the resurrection and the miraculous. But I want us to see that Daniel's situation is no different. Remember, Daniel is not writing this book in some sort of spiritual vacuum where he's floating on clouds and everything's very nice. Daniel is living in exile, surrounded by great superpowers, the Babylonians and later the Persians. So Daniel is living with a huge degree of uncertainty himself about his future. No different to you and me, I suspect. But we need to read the book of Daniel by, as it were, putting on some glasses so that we see differently, so that we start seeing the world through the eyes of God, seeing what he sees. So come with me to chapter um, 7, verse 1. If you have a Bible, it would be really handy to keep it in front of you so that you can follow the story as it goes. But you see there in verse 1, it's the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So what we've got here is we're going back now into chapter 5 of the book of Daniel. It's about 522 B.C., And Belshazzar, who was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, he's a ruthless ruler. He was oppressing God's people. And so God's people living under that rule needed to have a vision of the future that would inspire them, that would give them hope, that would help them to persevere. And do you notice in verse 1, up to now in Daniel, it's been the foreign kings who've had visions and Daniel's been asked to interpret them. Here, Daniel has a vision. Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. And what you get in this chapter is a kind of clash. Two spiritual worlds meet head to head. The kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness, meets and clashes with the kingdom of God. And all that bizarre imagery that uh, that Nigel read to us earlier is trying to help us to understand this cosmic spiritual battle that is going on in the world in which we live. So let's have a look at the kingdom of darkness to start with. Look at verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision at night, and I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. In the ancient Near East, the sea was mysterious, it was dangerous, people feared it. It was representative of kind of rebellion and chaos and disorder. I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why in the book of Revelation, when John is given a picture or vision of heaven, we read the funny words, there was no longer any sea. I don't believe that that means there'll be no surfing in heaven. There'll no longer be this rebellion, this chaos, this disorder in heaven, because all that will have come to an end. Heaven will be a perfect place. Now I want you to picture now, if it helps you to close your eyes, do it. You're at the beach, you see in front of you the great sea, and up out of the sea come these enormous monsters, something out of a cartoon almost, something out of a horror movie. Think kind of Kong, King Kong. Think Predator. Think um, Jurassic Park. Some, Some great monsters, some great powers that frighten you, that stir your emotions, that move you. These are the sort of things that come up out of the sea. 
The four great beasts come up out of the sea. And verse 4, what's the first one like? The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. Both lions and eagles in the Bible represent power and dominion. Lions are hugely strong. The Romans, who came much later, upon their standard bearers, there was a giant eagle. It was a sign or a signal of strength. Notice then the second beast that comes up out of the sea. This one looks like a bear. And this beast is pretty ferocious and destructive. What's it got in its mouth? Ribs. This is no vegetarian beast. This is a beast that is ripping to shreds whatever animal that it has in its mouth. And we read here, it was told to get up and eat its fillish flesh. So whatever this beast represents, it represents something ferocious and very, very destructive. Verse 6, after this I looked and there before me was another beast, like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like that of a bird. Think of a leopard and a bird, the idea that they move very quickly. Whatever this beast represents, it represents at least swift movement. And the beast had four heads, perhaps signifying that it can see in every direction. It's moving quickly in all directions. And then verse 7, I saw in my night vision, and behold, a fourth beast. This beast was terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. In the Bible, horns were representative of power. So this beast is exceedingly strong and it's destroying everything in its path. Now now hold these sort of four beasts in front of you. They've just come up out of the sea and they're standing before you. What are you seeing? And remember, what are you seeing in the sense of what is God seeing? And how does it make you feel when you read these evocative descriptions of these great beasts? They're terrifying, aren't they? It stirs your emotion. Almost reading this makes you feel tired. And that's what apocalyptic literature is trying to do. It's trying to move your senses to understand the spiritual realities lying behind these extraordinary descriptions. Now, I think there are two dangers when you read apocalyptic writing in the Bible. One is to try to read specific detail into every single little analogy and picture, as if it was some sort of cosmic... Um, riddle, a divine riddle which you have to sort of somehow unravel and you have to pin every detail. That's one danger. The other danger is you read this stuff and it's so bizarre and kind of otherworldly, you sort of think, well, it's just kind of like a cartoon, something out of Disney. It's therefore not very real and not very believable. But both those things are errors. If you think about these four descriptions, I think it's wrong to read them and try to pin them on specific things in history. But it doesn't mean it doesn't refer to specific things in history. And I think there's every opportunity and possibility that these four beasts represent the four great superpowers that were standing in front of Daniel in that era. The lion, the wings of an eagle, speaking of dominion and strength, easily could represent the Babylonians who just come into Jerusalem, lay siege to it and cart off God's people into captivity. The second beast, very ferocious, could easily represent the Persians. And you only have to read about the Persian superpower and how horrible they were and how destructive. The third beast that's moving quickly, well, it was the Greek Empire that expanded so, so quickly across the known world. 
And then this fourth beast and the associations with iron could easily represent the Roman Empire, hugely tyrannical. Now it could mean these four superpowers, but I don't believe it only means these. And that's where the danger lies if you try and pin these details in too much. It probably means these four superpowers, but also, in a sense, any great power that rises up against the living God. These beasts, these powerful images, are images of beasts that are continuing to be at work in the world today. And we're going to come back to that. But look in the reading, because the focus then shifts from these four terrifying beasts, whoever they are, whatever they represent... And we then come to get a picture or a description of the kingdom of God. Now before I even try to describe it, have a think in your mind. How would you expect the kingdom of God to be described? We know it's going to be in stark contrast to the kingdom of this world. But have a look, it's wonderful. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat His clothing was white as snow, symbolic of purity. And the hair of his head was like pure wool, symbolic of wisdom. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. So it's this idea of a mobile, powerful throne room. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. What picture is being built here? It's a picture of 100 million people standing before the throne room of God. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So in contrast to these terrifying four beasts, you have this one described as the Ancient of Days, who's a powerful judge, who has purity to judge justly, who's decisive in his judgment. And then look how it goes on in verse 11. I look then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Remember the horn here is representative of the power of evil that is opposed to the living God. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Okay, there's lots going on here. It's quite difficult to understand, but let's again step back. What's going on in the big picture? What Daniel is describing here is a great cosmic battle that is going on, a battle between the spiritual powers of evil and the spiritual powers of the living God. These destructive spiritual powers are seeking to destroy God and destroy his people. And the living God who is seated on his throne is gathering to himself his people. He's rescuing them and he's keeping them safe. And the Apostle Paul helpfully helps us understand what is going on here. Because in Ephesians chapter 6, these will be familiar words to most here, I'm sure. What does the Apostle Paul remind us of? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If you're a Christian, your life is going to be one of battle and frustration and hardship. And the Bible's really clear about that. 
I know there are many here and you pray fervently for an unbelieving spouse and it's painful because you've been praying for decades. That's not just a battle with your spouse. That is an inherently spiritual battle, the battle for that person's heart. And so that little picture, that little human relationship that's being lived out, there is a spiritual battle going on. Think about as Christians seeking to uphold marriage as it's held out in God's word, being undermined all over our society. That's not just a political battle. It's a deeply spiritual battle. Think of the fragmentation of society with marriages breaking up so, so quickly, with families that are increasingly eating dinner in their own bedrooms, with TVs in their own rooms, breaking families apart. Bigger and bigger homes being built with bigger and bigger fences, keeping people out. It's a spiritual battle because this disunity and this fracturing of society is everything that God is opposed to, but everything that Satan wants to achieve. You think of the times when you're trying to share your faith and it's just met with cynicism or apathy. People either mock you or they just don't care. It's not simply down to your eloquence in explaining the Christian faith to convert them. It's a deeply spiritual thing that is going on. It's a battle for that person's heart. Think of all the discouragements you face on a day-to-day basis in all the different walks of your life. Think of the ill health or the pain of separation and death that many people experience. All part and symptom of a broken world that is godless. There's a spiritual realm in all of these issues. And you and I have to live through and in some of them and they can be deeply, deeply painful. And so as we look at the world around us, we mustn't just look and see what we see, but we need to pray that God would change our eyes so that we can see what he sees. To see that there is this cosmic battle going on. Satan and all his influence and the living God and his great eternal power. And they clash. And we get caught up in the middle. I think it's why Neil's sermon this morning that was so helpful, teaching us and reminding us as a church of the need to be devoted to God in prayer is so, so important in this. Because if it's a spiritual battle, it needs a spiritual remedy. Which is why we've got to battle in prayer. Have you ever wondered why praying is difficult? The devil hates you praying. He hates me praying. When you're preparing to preach a sermon, it's like anything and everything that could ever distract you all comes at you at once. Why is that? It's not just a coincidence. The devil doesn't want us to pray because there's spiritual power in prayer. Of course, we don't want to sort of over-spiritualize in an unhelpful sense every little detail of our life. But I suspect for most of us, that's not our actual problem. I suspect for most of us, our problem is under-spiritualizing and actually forgetting the reality of what's on the screen behind me. That we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So friends, what do you need when you are engaging in this battle? Well, notice the verse that comes after this. Verse 13. What does the Apostle Paul encourage us to do? Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that you may be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes. But that command is so often misunderstood because this call to arms, to bear arms, to put on the armour of God is not a call for you or for me or us together to go out into battle in our own strength and to win the victory for God. 
When we're called to put on the full armor of God, the descriptions of the armor of God are all descriptions that are used elsewhere in the Bible of God himself. So when the Apostle Paul here says, clothe yourself in the armor of God, what's he actually saying is this, clothe yourself in Christ, cover yourself in God. See, it's not my righteousness that protects me, it's his righteousness. It's not my life that gives me peace, it's his peace. It's not my word that will ever persuade a person to put their trust in Christ, it's his word. It's not my strength that fights in the battle, it's his spirit. It's not my salvation that I earn through all my hard work and effort, it's the salvation that Christ won for me on the cross. But notice what God shows Daniel next in the dream. Let's just come back to our passage. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed isn't that the most extraordinary description one like a son of man God's anointed ruler God's appointed judge God's appointed rescuer And what is one of the names that Jesus Christ most commonly used of himself when he walked the earth? He described himself as the son of man because he was God's established ruler. He was God's established rescuer. He was God's established judge. And so the reason that we read these words are to fill us with confidence that God has, as we read in Psalm 2, installed his king on Zion. He rules. And so even though we're living in this battle We're on the winning side if we're trusting in Christ. Verse 18 again. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. What's being described here is this cosmic spiritual battle where the war has already been won because Christ beat it, beat death. He defeated it on the cross. But the battle still rages and you and I live in the middle And there's this tension because the world, the kingdom of darkness is constantly pulling us away. Doubt God. Doubt his righteousness. Doubt the gospel. You're not good enough. Try harder. And then you've got Christ who keeps whispering gently in your ear, you're my child and I love you and you're secure in my hands and I'll never ever let you go. And all during our life you'll feel the tension of the pull of the world and you hear the gentle firm whisper of Christ. But the confidence that this book of Daniel, and particularly this chapter, gives us is that if we're trusting in Christ, our future is certain. That is why everything we learned in chapters 1 to 6 about God are so, so important when we come into chapter 7. It's because of who God is that we can have confidence of our future because he has spoken. But friends, we've got to be realistic that this battle will be tough. And you get a description of that in verse 25. Speaking again of Satan and his devices, these great beasts, we read that he will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people. Uh, Literally, that means wear out. As a Christian, do you ever feel worn out? 
regularly feel worn out. As churches, we feel worn out. We feel in the minority. We feel like we're really cutting against the grain, swimming against the tide. You feel worn out because Satan is seeking to do everything he can to undermine our faith, to break our church apart, to doubt, help us to doubt the word of God, to keep us away from prayer. But wonderfully, the battle will not rage forever because we read in verse 26, the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. What I love about this chapter, one of the things that's really affected me this week is this, that the writer's focus actually isn't on the terrifying nature of these beasts and being overwhelmed by it. The writer's focus is on the outcome because it's the outcome that we must fix our eyes on, where we're headed, what Christ has won for us. If we fix our eyes on all the opposition and all the battles of our life, if we look within to our own strength to deal with them, that is where we fall short. But what Daniel chapter 7 does is it lifts our eyes and points us to the future, which is secure. So let me encourage some of you who are discouraged. As you continue to battle in prayer for an unbelieving spouse, know deep in your heart that ultimately God controls their eternity, not you. And so though it's right to persist in prayer and gather friends around you who can persist with you, it's not ultimately your battle. It's the Lord's. As we seek to uphold Christian marriage, know that God's word, his truth will speak and one day everything that is true will be revealed. As the world is being fragmented and broken apart, know it's the gospel that unites and brings us together again under Christ. As you face the cynicism and apathy as you seek to share your faith with others, know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As you face discouragement every day, look to Christ for your joy. As you battle with ill health and face death, know that one day you will be given a new life and a new and perfect body. And that's a pretty good thing for most of us. Of course, I don't want to sound in any sense flippant of the hardships that we will go through in our life and the burdens that many here will carry, perhaps for many, many decades. But like this chapter helps us, let us not focus on that which is difficult. Let us focus on the Lord who helps us overcome the things that are difficult. One final word, and it's God's word. Look at verse 28. Here is the end of the matter. Now it's translated like that so that you can read it so it flows, but it literally reads this. Here is the word. Just think about that. What is the relationship between the end of the matter and the word? It's this, that when God speaks, stuff happens. Uh, my favorite verses in the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 55, I pray it every time I get up to preach. The word that goes out from your mouth never returns to you empty, but accomplishes what you desire and achieves the purpose for which you sent it. That is your confidence when you get in the pulpit and preach. His word does its work. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The book of Hebrews, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. 
His word is powerful. So when God speaks, stuff happens. How did the cosmos come into being? There was nothing. And God spoke, let there be light. The point is, when God speaks, it's always the end of the matter. God never speaks with wishful thinking, one day I hope. Uh, Trust me, take a bit of a gamble and hopefully we'll all end up okay. God speaks and it happens. It is the end of the matter. It is the word. And that is why the word of God is so precious to us, friends. Because if we keep believing it, if we keep reading it, if we keep trusting it, and if we keep sharing it, then God will help us to persevere to the finish line. It's his battle, and he will fight it for us. All we have to do is stick close to the cross and live day by day by his grace. So as the band come up to lead us in a final song, let me read the words that we're going to sing shortly. And maybe we can sing this as a prayer. This is how the words go. May the words of Christ our Saviour live in me from day to day. By his power and love controlling all I do and say. May the word of Christ dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour. So that all may see I triumph only through his power.